Coming up, we're deep into the first round of the NBA playoffs with the Knicks on life support, the Lakers in trouble, and the reigning two-time MVP of the Bucks making a statement with the sweep of the Heat. An enormous Game 7 in Toronto tonight puts the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs to rest, while the second round is already on the way. We've hit the first major point of the baseball season, and it's the Mets that have the largest lead of any first-place team in both leagues. A familiar face wins the Indy 500. Julio Jones wants out of Atlanta, but is Seattle his next destination? And Naomi Osaka's media boycott? Where are you going to get all this sports talk on one podcast? You guessed it, right here. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Reels Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, and great spirits as we've reached the final day of the month. But it's also the unofficial beginning of summer. And it certainly didn't feel anything close to that this weekend in the Northeast as it was in the low to mid-50s, rainy, but that'll turn here in the days to come as we commemorate those that we have lost in the many ranks of the military over the years on this Memorial Day. Thank you to those who have served, fought, and died for our country as June is knocking on the door and as we get closer to the halfway point of the year, can you believe it? Can time just slow down for one bit? Jeez, I'll be answering all that's going on in the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. 
And for those who have been banging with me for now, 196 episodes. I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, May the 31st in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect on this podcast is as follows. If there's ever an important game, not just for an organization, but as a city on a whole to win a game, and that's not an understatement, the spotlight is on Toronto this evening as the Maple Leafs look to exercise some demons tonight in a Game 7 versus Montreal at home. The second round of the playoffs are on the way. I have to get on my high horse a little bit after what took place in Colorado last night. So fasten your seatbelts on this one because you know I have a ton to get off my chest in regards to that. We've reached the first threshold of the baseball season with our sights set into the heart of the schedule. Is it too early to discuss pretenders and contenders? Not only that, but the Tampa Bay Rays winning 15 of 16. They've been the top story in baseball as they head into the Bronx for four starting today. Lots to get into what's going on in the Diamond. As far as the NFL goes, yeah, a couple of news and notes. As tomorrow is June 1st, you may see some player movement. Players getting cut, released because of bonuses and things of that nature. But the top story is Julio Jones wanting out of Atlanta. But where is he going? Is Seattle the rumored stop for the former All-Pro? I'll touch on why that isn't a good idea later on. Also, the French Open and tennis has begun Naomi Osaka wins her first match yesterday, but the highlight is that she did not and will not speak to the media, citing mental health issues. This was prior to the beginning of the tournament. She's already been docked $15,000 and a possible expulsion of this tournament. I'll get into all that later on. Also, the Indy 500, we've had a familiar face win that yesterday at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Lots to cover here, including my hero and zero of the week, now, I started last week's podcast with how the country is now in the home stretch to getting back to whatever this new normal is going to be. As I watched a packed house at MSG last week for game one between the Hawks and the Knicks. I actually went to my first movie in about 15 months, people. I saw A Quiet Place 2, which was very good. If you enjoyed the first one, you'll like this one as well. And throughout the past week, we've seen buildings full in the NBA, NHL, even in Major League Baseball in some places. We had 130,000 at the Indianapolis Speedway yesterday, which I'll touch on later. But is it weird for me to say that after one week, it's still strange to see 15, 16, even 17,000 people jammed in an arena, screaming their faces off shoulder to shoulder with the next person as we're coming out of this pandemic? I'm sure that most, if not all, of the people have been participating at these sporting events have been vaccinated because these arenas that have these sections that are dedicated to that, they certainly don't want to have to feel the brunt of any local municipalities, governments, etc. Knowing that the world has to come back at some point, but for whatever the reason, just being able to see this over the course of the last seven days, yes, has it been great to feel some energy through your TV set, to hear the crowd, to hear some boos, to hear cheers and all that? Absolutely. And I knew that this wasn't going to go on forever. At some point, the tide was going to turn. And we've seen throughout the course of the last few months how, whether it was 10% in certain areas, here in New York in particular, whether it was at the Garden or the Barclays Center or even at City Field and Yankee Stadium. But the strange thing is, is that with the baseball, it hasn't seemed to increase the way it has in the NBA and NHL. Where now the Islanders come Wednesday night will host in the second round of the postseason, the Boston Bruins, where they'll have, I believe, an upwards of at least 12,000 people there. Baseball, you still have the 20%. So I've been a little bit confused with that, especially here locally, because 
if we're allowing all these people that have been vaccinated for the most part in these buildings to the tune of 17,000 people, then what in the hell is going on with baseball where it's outdoors, obviously, and you don't have to worry about jammed people in areas, especially when you're inside of a building, vaccinated in particular. But to me, it doesn't make sense as to why hasn't baseball, and you would think it would probably start today as the Tampa Bay Rays invade the Bronx for four, where... You would think that the capacity should increase to who knows how much. I don't know if that means it's going to be close to 100%, 50%, 75%. I keep my fingers on the pulse here with the news and what's going on. And I think baseball seems to be a step behind here. So even though we're not fully back, granted that a lot of these places have opened up the museums, the movie theaters. And even when I sat in the theater the other day, it was very sparse. It wasn't shoulder to shoulder. There was a couple behind my fiance and I, but it wasn't to the tune where you had to look left and look right and to think that there were people within literally a couple of feet from you and maybe wondered or worried whether or not, oh, geez, is this person vaccinated or not? We understand the sporting event is going to be a lot different than a movie theater because the theater is going to pack, what, a couple hundred people despite the restrictions not being lifted when it comes to a movie theater or obviously Broadway here. And now with baseball, we're going to get to see in a matter of days, especially here in the New York area, on whether or not we're going to have close to 50,000 at Yankee Stadium for a big series between the Rays and the Bombers. And the reason why I bring that up, because I know it may sound crazy for me to start the podcast off this way and also to be a little bit confused as to why we've come back, not necessarily in a rush, but to think it almost seems like from one week to the next, we went from... 10 to 20% to almost 100%. And granted that I don't live in some of these other regions or some of these other areas where, look in Texas, they've had fans in their ballpark for the Rangers from day one at 40,000 strong. But the reason why I start off with the fans is because as I segue this into the NBA, the behavior by the fans in the past week certainly raises an eyebrow And I don't want to hear the excuse about people being stuck at home or people being cooped up and not being able to let out any type of emotion. Forget about frustration. We put that aside. It's one of those things where now it's getting to a point where these fans need to be policed. And I understand that with a packed house, you can't have a security guard or a cop in every section to kind of monitor what the hell is going on with some of these fans and their behavior. But it's deplorable to say the least. So what we witnessed here over the past seven days, whether it was in Philadelphia with Russell Westbrook with the guy throwing popcorn through the covering there where Russell Westbrook had to be restrained and not go into the seats. Here in New York where the fan spit on Trey Young. And then yesterday, and I get that the Celtic fan is bent out of shape And upset about Kyrie Irving and everything that he brings when it comes to him facing his former team. But for that kid at the end of the game, and he has been arrested and good for him and banned, I guess, indefinitely. Or if it's a lifetime ban, who knows. But for him to throw a water bottle in the direction of Kyrie Irving at the very end of the game. Come on, people. We're much better than this. And you're only going to ruin the experience for all the other fans that are there. 
to yell, scream, boo. All right, cursing, you know, if you have a few beers in you, not that I condone that, but it's certainly not a good look if you're going to be out there shouting out F-bombs or 12-letter words at certain players where you have kids and other people. Hold yourself with a little bit more decency and courtesy for your fellow patrons in the building. I mean, this has become an absolute joke. How is it getting to the point where these fans feel like they have the right to throw something at anybody, forget about just a player, but just anyone alone, but more so a player, and you got to agree with what Kevin Durant said last night. It's not as if these guys are part of a circus or a human zoo where if you don't like what they're doing or what they say or dominate in the manner that they did last night against the Celtics that you have the right to throw stuff at them. I mean, come on, people. Get a clue. And who knows what this is going to mean if there's going to be any trickle-down effect, not only just with the NBA, but as fans start to enter these buildings, same for the NHL. This goes to Major League Baseball, and the NFL doesn't have to worry about this, yet again. But down the road, you would have to think that if you have 80,000 strong in an NFL stadium, and let's say for whatever the reason Deshaun Watson's playing, and people are going to start throwing things at him in a road environment. Obviously, this is something that needs to be taken care of quick, fast, in a hurry. We've had three incidents this week. I mean, how many more are we going to go through before this becomes out of control? And sadly, it's the young fan. It's the 21 to 25-year-old fan that feels that they're bigger than life, that they puff out their chest, that nothing's going to happen to them, And they're the ones that are stirring the pot to where good for them that they're not only getting arrested, but banned from these arenas. But at the same time, is this going to continue? How is this going to play out here over the course of these next few weeks, few months, as we get more out of the pandemic and back to a normal life where going to a ball game should be a pleasure and a treasure? Not something to spew vitriol or to chuck things from the top row or from five rows from center court, whatever it may be. Come on, guys, let's get a clue here. And no excuses. I don't want to hear, well, hey, I paid my money and I'm going to do whatever it is that I feel is right at that time. No, A, that's not right. B, find something else to yell and scream at. Just disgraceful on many fronts. So unfortunately, that's how I start off this podcast because to me, with the fans coming back and with the behavior and what we've seen here so far in the NBA alone, and then now with baseball and even the NHL, because you never know how this could play out over the course of these next few weeks and months, hopefully it gets nipped in the bud and that we can forget about it. And I understand there's always going to be one or two fans that are going to get drunk and act stupid and belligerent, and usually that's with other fans in the building. As we've seen here in recent memory, if you've watched some of these fights on social media between these fans, which is, I mean, come on, please. But are we that disconnected that we feel as if this is a free-for-all? So sadly, I had to start off there. So now, let's go to what you really came for and discuss about what's happening on the court. And we'll start with the NBA. And I got to break some bad news. If it wasn't for the LA teams... And that's the Lakers and Clippers. This first round has been an absolute dud. Let's call it as we see it. 
because even if you're a Nick fan right now, and I know you got to be a little bit sick as to what happened over the weekend in Atlanta, losing those two games, and I'll get to the Knicks in a minute, but it's both LA teams that are keeping our interest right now because if you're following the Sixers and Wizards series, which is a three games to love where the Sixers could clinch tonight, and I don't want to hear about Joel Embiid's 36 points the other night, his playoff career high, it was against the Wizards. So before everybody starts thinking, uh-oh, Philly's primed and ready for a championship run here, let's pump the brakes on that. So that series, I don't care what happens tonight, the Wizards could win 122 to 95. This series is going to be over in five games at the most, but I think it'll be over tonight. We already have one series in the East that's done, and that's the Bucks avenging the loss from the bubble last year against the Miami Heat to where they swept them four straight. Game one came down to the overtime shot with Chris Middleton. And after that, it was pretty much all she wrote. There was a little bit of competitive fire there in game four as Miami had a lead at halftime. But slowly and surely, the Bucks chipped away and they took over in the second half to the tune of a 120-103 to victory. And from one year to the next, the Heat, who had wonderful performances from Jimmy Butler to Tyler Hero to Bam Adebayo and also Duncan Robinson, if you look at what they did last year in the postseason and then just in this one round against the Bucks, it was night and day. And it pretty much showed in their performance because they weren't able to win one game in the series, let alone be even competitive. Because if you look at the final scores in Game 2 and Game 3 and how Game 4 ended, ugh. It was almost as if they were ready for an early vacation. As far as Boston and Brooklyn, other than Jason Tatum's 50-point barrage and backed by Marcus Smart's 23, as well as Tristan Thompson, give him a shout because he chipped in with 19 and 13. This series would have been over in four if it wasn't for that game because last night, Kyrie, with a terrible performance in game three, And although Durant and Harden have been fantastic in this series, but Kyrie Irving made up for it last night with a 39-point performance. I believe he had 11 rebounds in the process as they disposed of the Celtics 141-126. I mean, think about this. The Celtics scored 125 points on Friday night in a victory and 126 points last night, but they lost by 15. That's all you need to know about the NBA in 2021. And... With that performance, I know a lot of people want to look at Kyrie as getting a little bit of payback from what took place in Game 3. Now, mind you, Game 3, I believe there were 4,000 people in attendance to where Saturday was the first day that the restrictions were lifted in Massachusetts. If you watch Game 1 of the Stanley Cup playoff matchup between the Islanders and Bruins, that was a packed house. So now the Celtics were able to get a full house in yesterday. And Kyrie really stuck it to the... Celtic fans, at the end of the game, he even stepped on the logo and kind of like wiped his foot. I'm not going to get crazy about that. It's not as if he jumped up and down or whatever. Right. Do you like it? Of course not. But what can I say? That was his way of payback. I'm not going to add any more wood to the fire on that one. To me, it is what it is. And Kyrie and the Nets are going to move on to the next round. And away we go. And I'm not going to talk about the Celtics. What is there to discuss? Kemba was out yesterday with a knee. That's no excuse. The Celtics would have lost by 15, even with Kemba in the lineup. So the Celtics, I'll say for another day as far as what they'll do in the offseason. Maybe I'll touch on them for a few minutes next week. But 
they are certainly going to be ready for the execution come tomorrow night here in Brooklyn in a game five against the Nets. And then you have the Knicks and the Hawks where, first off, you got to give the Hawks credit. I knew this was going to be a tough series. I did pick the Knicks to win in seven. And could it be possible that the Knicks could go seven games? Of course, anything is possible. But with the way this team has played in the regular season, it certainly has not translated to the postseason, especially when it comes to their top player in Julius Randle. Because here's a guy that I was singing his praises about a month, five weeks ago, where he wouldn't be a top three MVP candidate, but his name could have been thrown in that ballot for at least a vote or two, whether it would be a second, third, or fourth place vote for an MVP in the league. But right now, when you look at his performance here in this postseason, other than the flurry that he had in game two where the Knicks came back and won their only game of the series, he has done absolutely nothing and has been invisible. And I don't want to hear from the Knicks fan that yesterday with his 23-10, and 10, those numbers were shallow. Because if you watch that game... He was missing putbacks, fumbling balls out of bounds. I know late in the game, he gave the elbow to Danilo Gallinari. To me, that was sticking up for his teammate in a one Reggie Bullock. Because if you remember, Reggie Bullock, right at a timeout, was about to head in the direction of the Hawk bench. And I guess to Gallinari in particular. And then he was held back by some of his teammates. Now, it didn't make it right that... Randall did that, of course. He got a flagrant. At that point, Thibodeau said, game over for you. But it just shows a lack of professionalism overall on his end because, remember, he had a offensive foul there where he bulldozed, and I mean really steamrolled, John Collins to the basket, and he did it with some menace. And that actually could have been a flagrant too, the way he landed his elbow into his mouth. But for whatever the... Nick fan could say about their season right now, if they do not come out of it with a win in game five, to me, the season is up in smoke. I'm not going to look at this as a successful season. Yes, is it a building block? Is it a step forward? Without question. But for them to have a season where they were 10 games over 500, they went 41 and 31, and even if they lose in six, but let's see some competitive fire here starting Wednesday night to where at least they could show their fans Not only do they mean business, but at the same time, give them an effort that is worth cheering about. Because what you saw over the weekend in Atlanta was not only inexcusable, but where was this Nick team from the regular season that's supposed to show up here in the postseason? No toughness, no credibility because of Randall, and he's a leader of that team. Derrick Rose, give him all the credit in the world. He's performed well, but he's starting to lose a little bit of steam here. As you saw in the second half of the game yesterday, He wasn't able to pull his team out of the fire. And when you have guys like Alec Burks and Reggie Bullock, no offense to those guys, but this isn't going to be a team that's going to go deep into a postseason, especially when you're going up against a team that has the talent of a Trey Young, of a kid in Bogdanovich who knows how to shoot, John Collins, who was in his own right invisible the first few games of the series, but has come back and played particularly well in the two games down in Atlanta. The team has some players. Clint Capella could get a rebound and play some defense. The Knicks don't really have that. Yes, collectively as a team, they can, but individually, as far as talent goes, Atlanta's a lot better. So if you're a Knicks fan right now, you're just hoping that you have a rocking chair 
116-95 type victory, similar to the game yesterday that the Hawks went through and put a pounding on the Knicks. And then you just go to Atlanta with your fingers crossed and when you get off the plane, make sure you get on the bus, get into the arena and give it all you got for 48 minutes. And if you lose a close game, yes, tough ending to your season, but at least you fought to the very end. Don't go out in a whimper and tease your fan base to think that, wow, we expected a lot more than a five-game or even a six-game defeat at the hands of a Hawks team that has just as much playoff experience than the Knicks do. So that's your story in the East. Not a lot of drama. Series are pretty much over for the most part. You have a bunch of 3-0s and 3-1s and one series that's already done. So now as we transition out West, and I'll get to both the Lakers and Clippers last, Denver and Portland, competitive series. Denver after losing game one, and as we talked about last week, the Trailblazers were looking to have Nikola Jokic be the one guy that they would not only just focus on, but just from a standpoint of him not being the distributor and letting him score all the points, not letting anybody else on the team go off. In games two and three, that wasn't the case as Denver not only evened up the series, but then took the lead there on Friday night. Oh, excuse me, on uh, Thursday night. And then on Saturday, the Trailblazers came back and even the series, big performance there by the Trailblazers, who, as we know, they have it in them. They have the backcourt that a lot of teams would envy in a one Damian Lillard and CJ McCullough. Even Coach Mike Malone of the Nuggets came out and labeled his team soft, that they played soft in the game four. Let's see what that does. Will that ignite the troops to come out in a game five and just take it to the opponent and game five will be tonight in Denver? Or will they look at that as a way where anytime you label your team one of these three words, it's never a good look, whether it's soft, quit, or choke. Now, that's what we're going to find out tonight, whether they respond in a positive way or whether they feel as if their coaches submarining them or minimizing their efforts because in this day and age we know the players being sensitive and not handling criticism the way that they may normally should or players in the past now we understand we can't compare the past to today as I'll discuss a little bit later on but we'll see how Denver and Portland shapes up I would think that's going to go seven games if you ask me right now Memphis and Utah, after the game one where Memphis went in there, Dylan Brooks and John Morant stole that one from the likes of the Jazz. But with Donovan Mitchell coming back to a little bit of controversy, he felt that he could have played in game one. They held him back. He's been back here, been effective, but the Jazz have taken over the series in a game four tonight, which would be critical for Memphis if they have any chance of getting back into the series. And Utah, you think, will be off and running here at least to a first-round series victory. Also, Mike Conley in his return to Memphis as a member of the Utah Jazz. He's done that before, but here in a different setting for the postseason, had 27 points in the big game there on Saturday night, where it was nip and tuck back and forth to the very end. So we would think that Utah will get out of this without any more harm. And as far as the LA teams, I'll start with the Lakers only because We talked about this a few weeks back where if Anthony Davis and or LeBron James were not going to be 100%, this could be a spring 
into the possible summer where the Lakers may not get out alive here. And with Anthony Davis crumbling to the Staples Center's floor yesterday at the end of the first half, and him not coming back, and although he has a left groin issue where it's listed right now as day-to-day, I'm sure as I'm speaking right now, there's more of a prognosis or tests that are being performed to see how he's going to be able to bounce back or even play in tomorrow night's pivotal game five. But even if he's 50% and we get sometimes 50% is better than 100% of a lot of the guys in the league, especially if your name is Anthony Davis. But with all the other injuries that he's had to endure this year, to me, this is the beginning of the end for the Lakers. And I'm not trying to say that they're going to lose this series. Can they lose the series? Absolutely. Especially if Davis is not going to be in the lineup. But even if Davis happens to chip in with 10 minutes per game and they make it out of the series, I don't think they're going to be long for this postseason if they're going to have to go with a hobbled Anthony Davis and defend their title. And that's not going out on the limb. That's just being 100% honest. I mean, how much more can you put on the Lakers repeating if Davis isn't going to be anywhere close to 100%? But give credit to the Suns yesterday after Anthony Davis had two great performances in Game 2 and Game 3 and with Chris Paul being hobbled with his own injury in the shoulder he came back with an 18.9 assist effort and no turnovers where the Suns even the series and will go back to Phoenix to the Valley of the Sun to try to take a three games to two lead tomorrow night in Phoenix and That was a game that Chris Paul and company needed. There were even reports about Paul sitting out for the game and he said, hell no, that's not going to happen and good for him because he did show that toughness. He did show not only to himself, which he didn't need to prove, but to his teammates and the rest of the league that he wants to try to get that brass ring. Whether or not he'll get it, I don't think it'll be the case, but it goes to show how at 36 years of age, And been around the block several times in this league, knowing that his team has a very good opportunity to not only even the series, but maybe even dethrone the Lakers and go deep in this postseason, he couldn't back down or let down his teammates and maybe even let down himself to know that if he didn't play and give it a shot, that this team could be on the brink of being out of the postseason. So kudos to him. And of course, DeAndre Ayton has played fantastic here and was instrumental in their victory yesterday. Devin Booker, of course. Jay Crowder, who finally hit a three-pointer where it counted. There, had the dagger at the end of the game, and he's been awful from behind the arc. So the Suns look like they not only have life, but they have a lot of oxygen in their lungs to maybe even close out this series. A lot of it depends on the health of Anthony Davis, but all the momentum is with the Suns right now, and you would think that they'll be in good shape moving forward. And then lastly... The Clippers, who were down 0-2 going to Dallas and were down 30-11 late in the first quarter in Game 3. And we've talked about it time after time with this team, this organization, etc., how they need the mental and testicular fortitude to get over the hump. And boy, did they ever do so from that point on. They came back to win a big game there on Friday night where Kawhi scored... 36 points, and Paul George chipped in as well. And then last night, they pretty much obliterated the Mavs from start to finish. Luka Doncic, who came into the game with a neck issue, 
didn't blame that was awful for him where I believe, what was he, 9 for 24 and had 18 points in the game. So the Clippers have righted the ship and now go back to LA even at 2-2, but there's still a lot of work to be done. You still can't trust this Clipper team because the Mavs could go in there and come back to their games one and two performance and then go back to Dallas with a chance to win that series. So even though things may seem right and the waters have calmed off the shores there in Southern California for the Clippers, but by any means, they have not reached the shore just yet. So we'll wait and see. I think the Clippers, I said before that they'll win in six. Maybe these two victories and the way they played, especially last night, a rocking chair 106-81 type victory. And now it's all in the Clippers' fate to put the pedal to the metal and see if they could now cruise past the Mavs and into the next round. And that's pretty much your first round, people. Again, the East is from boredom. The West, if it wasn't for the LA teams, I get that not many people are going to be wrapped up with Denver and Portland. Same for Memphis and Utah. Especially if Utah takes a 3-1 series lead tonight. Even if it's 2-2. Maybe the casual fan will tune in, but the NBA right now is navigated by its top teams. And we know who those teams are. So that's what we have there. And of course, Milwaukee's now waiting in the wings to see who's going to come out of the Celtics and Nets. And we all know it's going to be the Nets right now. And that's going to be a very fascinating series between the Nets and the Bucks. And I'm not going to preview that just yet. If anything, you can check any of my social media feeds. If you're not on them, don't worry. Wait till the end and I'll be sure to share where you could follow me so you could be kept up to date on any predictions and any news and notes from yours truly when it comes to my platforms. And then you have one sad note over the weekend, speaking of Utah, where Mark Eaton, the old Utah Jazz, seven foot four, going back to the early 80s, the days of Thurl Bailey, even before Carl Malone, died from a bicycle accident in Utah, in one of the suburbs out there. Sad that he was found on the side of the road, was rushed to a hospital, and then he was pronounced dead. Age of 64, just a terrible way to go. Sad, Very sad news and tragic news. So, as always, thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Eaton family, to the Utah Jazz community, etc. Just... You can't get any more awful news than that. Just uh, terrible in every way, shape, form, or fashion. And now I'll turn my attention to the NHL because the NHL tonight has probably one of the more underrated, but at the same time, a fan base, an organization, and a city that is going to be on pins and needles tonight, and that is Toronto, Canada. Because if you haven't heard me over the last couple of weeks, and pretty much even toward the tail end of the regular season, the Toronto Maple Leafs, I'm not going to say we're built to go to the Stanley Cup this year, but they've made a couple of moves off-season and in-season. First place in the North Division to go up against the Montreal Canadiens, and even after losing their captain in John Tavares in Game 1, where he has resumed skating, He's not expected to return back into the lineup for probably another 7 to 10 days. But who knows? Tonight could be the end of a Maple Leaf season and their fans right now, I can't even imagine, 
what is going through their hearts and minds right now knowing that they have to suffer through another Game 7, through another series defining and even, let's face it, this is their biggest game since the 93 Conference Finals against the LA Kings when they were that close to going to a Stanley Cup. Now we understand there have been some important games since then. And a lot of Game 7s and a lot of critical games last year, Game 5, where they lost to Columbus Blue Jackets, understood. This team has not gotten out of the first round in 17 years. This team had a 4-1 lead with 11 minutes left to go in a Game 7 against the Bruins and lost in overtime. Or I believe they actually lost in regulation, if I'm not mistaken. 5-4. Brutal losses to the Bruins over the years. The aforementioned loss to the Blue Jackets. Here they had a team that was ready to finally make a run, to finally get out of the first round, to finally, let's even hope and dream that they can make it back to a Stanley Cup final to win one for the first time in 54 years. But it all boils down to tonight. Because the Canadians have bounced back from a 3-1 series lead. They had a 2-0 lead in the third period on Saturday night. The Canadians that was, and you thought, oh geez, here it goes. Toronto's not going to have to go into this Game 7 with a bunch of question marks. Only to come back with two goals in the final seven minutes or so and make it a 2-2 game. Goes into the overtime. And what happens? Turnover in their zone. Puck goes over right into the middle of the ice or middle of the Maple Leaf zone. Punched into the net. And now here we are with a game seven. To the point where even Austin Matthews says that And I'm paraphrasing here that it's inexcusable. We need to play better. We should have closed out the series, etc. But there's one problem. Between he and Mitch Marner, they've combined for one goal in this series. Maybe it's time for him to look in the mirror and realize that this whole city is on edge, waiting to exhale just to get out of this first round. Let alone try to get to a Stanley Cup. So the finger's going to be pointed at him if they don't make it out alive here. And you would think by sometime 11 p.m., barring an overtime tonight, we're going to find out whether or not the Maple Leafs will move on or they'll go home yet again without getting out of the first round. This is an absolute must win if there ever was one. I mean, you can't even quantify it. You cannot. And I don't want to hear... From people outside of Toronto, oh, Jay Reels, come on, it's no big deal. It's just a game seven. And I'm not even from Toronto, and I'm not even a Maple Leaf fan. But I follow the sport long enough to know that this game right here, right now in front of them, is everything. This is pretty much game seven of a Stanley Cup final. Because could you imagine what the disappointment, the heartache, the heartbreak, no matter whether this team loses 6 nothing or loses in 10 overtimes, one nothing. What this will mean if they don't come out of this with a victory? Ah, oh, I can't even imagine. But we'll get to see that. And to me, that's the game of the night. I don't care what's going on in the NBA, and the NBA is going to be dead anyway. And baseball, I know it's Memorial Day, and people are going to follow what's going to happen in Major League Baseball. But to me, as a sports fan, that is the game to watch. That's... 
I know it's not must-see TV for 99.9% of the people in this country, but if you're a sports fan and you understand the magnetism and the just the scope of what this game means to this organization, this is a must-watch. I'm not overstating it or overrating it. That's a fact. So we'll get to see how that unfolds. And I can't wait. It's going to be thrilling to say the least. I mean, at least you think. Who knows? Watch Toronto get up to a 5 nothing lead and they win 7-1 or something. So we got that to chew on there tonight. Otherwise, a lot of these series have moved on. And before I get to that, we'll do a quick recap of what took place. Nashville and Carolina. Nashville made it interesting with the two wins in their building and going to a game five where they had an opportunity to win, but Carolina in another overtime. What else is new when it comes to the Stanley Cup playoffs? But Carolina took care of business. They won in six and now moved on to play Tampa, which is going to be another interesting series considering what Tampa, Florida, who Tampa dispatched of early in the week in six games, and how those two teams battled out. Now they're going to have Tampa and Carolina go at it here over the course of, I would say, probably at least six games. But Tampa wins yesterday. A close game, 2-1, to one, where the Carolina Hurricanes are the home team. So the home ice now is in favor of Tampa and Carolina. I'm not going to say it's a must-win game two, but they certainly don't want to go down 0-2 down to Tampa and have all the wind in their sails as they're trying to defend the cup themselves. But for the Lightning and Barkley Goodrow, who had the game-winning goal there, seven minutes to go in the third period, where they hung on to beat the Hurricanes, and now let's see what they do here in a game two, which I believe would be tomorrow night. You had the Islanders take care of the Penguins, Thanks to Tristan Jari because he was just terrible. Not only in the game six, the clincher for the Islanders, but what was he doing trying to pass the puck in the middle of the ice to where Josh Bailey stole it and put it in the net there for the Islanders to win a game five. Ron Hextall with the stick, he is not. And that's why the Penguins are going home and you got to wonder about their championship window. Granted, it's been a few years since they won those back-to-back titles against the San Jose Sharks and the Nashville Predators, but with Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, and company, you wonder if the window has just a crack in it for maybe one more title run. But when you think about it, three straight years out of the postseason in the first round makes you think that, uh uh-uh. There's no way that this team is going to be anything close to resembling, despite having the DNA and the pedigree, to going back to a Stanley Cup with this group here. We'll see what they do here in this offseason. You also have the Bruins who took care of the Capitals as we know, but then you had game one on Saturday night between the Islanders and Bruins. First time meeting up in the postseason since 1983. And it was a very good game back and forth there, but the Bruins took care of business thanks to David Pasternak's hat trick. The Bruins with a full house, big crowd, just cheering their beloved Bruins on. And I would think the Islanders would bounce back. They need to bounce back tonight. They can't go 0-2 against the Bruins in this series, although the scene will shift back to the Coliseum for the next two games. But I would think that the Islanders will play a little bit better. They didn't play badly in the game one, but the Bruins are just better. 
And now let's see if they could atone for their game one loss tonight in Boston. Then you had Winnipeg literally take the Oilers to the back of the woodshed and sweep Edmonton out of their misery. And I talked about it time after time, and I won't belabor the point, but you do have to wonder the Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, how they did not show up in the series. I know Dreisaitl had the couple of goals there in a game three in a series that they were down 0-2 and had a 4-1 lead, let it slip away, and then Winnipeg sealed the deal there in the final game to sweep Edmonton out. And it just makes you wonder whether or not Edmonton needs to make a wholesale change there. I'm not trying to say they got a ship McDavid to another team or Dreisaitl or anything like that, but I don't know if it's the coaching. I don't know if it's just the culture. Who knows? But for a team that has that type of offensive firepower, they don't have enough leadership in that locker room to take themselves to the next level. And I think that's what they need. They need to have a Mark Messier type, a guy who's going to be not just a heart and soul guy, but also a blood and guts guy. That's what they need, at least so it seems. I'm not following the Oilers on a day-in, day-out basis, but for them to have that type of talent and to not win a game in the series, and not only that, but also to lose a game three in the way they did, absolutely bad look, but give it up to the Jets. They did very well here, and they await the winner of the Montreal-Toronto game, as I mentioned earlier. And then you had Minnesota and the Vegas Golden Knights, where Minnesota... Inch back into the series. They were down 3-1. They won a game five in Vegas. Won a game six in their building in Minnesota. But then ran out of gas in a game seven where Vegas was just too strong. You had a hat trick from Matthias Jarmark, the first of his career. And he was too much for the Wild as they were unable to complete the three game to one comeback and move themselves onto the next round to play the Colorado Avalanche, which was game one last night, and there was no match, no rust, and no bones about who was the better team last night. Colorado just blitzed them from the start. Gabriel Landeskog with two goals, Nathan McKinnon with two goals. The Golden Knights maybe were feeling the effects of a long and emotional taxing series. All right, you can give it up to that. But the Colorado Avalanche are looking to mean business here in this postseason based on their performance last night, 7-1. And I do want to say this. My guy Headstyle in Minnesota, this goes out to you. Much respect, much love. He and I went back and forth on Twitter and he made some interesting points, which I won't get into. Headstyle on Twitter, if you want to follow, you can probably see my thread there I had with him in reference to this next topic that I'm about to get into. So I will say this, he took a little bit of steam out when it comes to this, but here it goes, I'm going to get right to it. If George Paros, the NHL disciplinarian, if he's going to look at what took place last night with Ryan Reeves, with Ryan Graves, and even the goalie, Philippe Grubauer, if he's going to look to hand down a suspension, whether it's one game, two games, whatever it is, well then he has a short memory because three weeks ago, when Tom Wilson was pushing Pavel Buchnevich and slamming Artemi Panarin to the ice to where he doled out a $5,000 fine and not a suspension and where two nights later, there was a rematch in the same building between those two teams and we know how that played out. All you got to do is just listen to that podcast from a few weeks ago to get my take on it. 
But for him to not give a suspension to Tom Wilson, based on that, and to me, that was way worse than what Reeves did last night, is going to be an absolute joke. Let's face it, and we know Paros is a former tough guy in the league, and I'm sure he's going to hear it from all ends and all sides. But if Reeves does come down with a suspension here, please, then what happened with Tom Wilson? He should have been suspended for a month. Because Wilson has more of a track record than Ryan Reeves does, but because Reeves is a tough guy, and the same for Wilson for that matter, but Wilson runs at people and he does things that we haven't seen Reeves do, or at least has on his resume when it comes to being disciplined in the league. But my point in all this is that the league needs to define whether or not what's going to be offensive, what's going to be reviewed as a suspension, fine, etc. Because you cannot hand out a fine for what Wilson did a few weeks ago and then suspend Reeves for what he did yesterday, which was much less than what Wilson did against the Rangers at the Garden at that time. It's now coming to the point where they're going to suspend people for wrestling or for a face wash or for the roughing. Uh, give me a break. And then not only that, but that translated to a nine-minute power play? Nine minutes? I've never heard of that as long as I've been alive. Has there ever been a nine-minute power play in the history of the National Hockey League? Right, we understand a five-minute major. Maybe if they're going to add two seven-minute, I guess maybe there's been a seven-minute, but nine? I could see if Ryan Reeves literally dropped the gloves, sucker-punched Graves from the back, then went over and challenged the Colorado bench. Okay, but he got a match penalty for that? And I know Headstyle, my guy, he's saying that my way of thinking is prehistoric. It's Neanderthal-like. I know he didn't use those words, but I'm using that. And it's a mentality that the old school mentality is the right way where we should be progressing and we should be evolving for a better game. And you know what? I understand that. And I get that, rightfully so. And I'm not going to waste too much of my breath on this because it's going to fall on a lot of deaf ears and I get this is my platform and so on and so forth or whatever. But again, if this player is going to be suspended for that act, then the Ben Wilsons, the Tiger Williams, the Dave Schultzes, the Terry O'Reilly's of the world, Chris Nyland, Joey Koser, go on down the line. They're laughing at this because they're going to look at this and say, wait, this guy got suspended for this? And right, I understand my guy evolving, evolution, that mentality, so on and so forth. But here's the thing. Fighting and physicality is still allowed in the sport. Now, we know that there are a handful of tough guys in the league and that's for a different set of encyclopedias to explain, which I won't get into right now. But if this is still allowed in the sport then ban it altogether. Because if there's going to be a guy that's going to slam somebody to the ice or face wash or an elbow or whatever, then get rid of it all. Then don't have it. Don't have these players. Let it be Disney on ice. Which for the most part it is in this day and age. Because you had an incident even yesterday where Max Pacioretty, who is not going to be confused with Ty Domi, where a player was about to charge and he leaned in and then swung his stick around to where originally he got 
a high sticking penalty, but then after review, it wasn't the case. But then you had players paired off where they're just holding one another, and you know they wanted to drop the gloves, but they didn't because a lot of these guys can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. And let's call it as we see it. That's the fact. Jay, that is 100% fact. But again, then abolish fighting altogether. Don't have it. And you know what? I won't gripe about it. I won't say another thing. And that's that. And I respect his opinion. And I get people probably saying, who's this head style guy? Why is Jay Reels bringing this guy up? So on and so forth. I bring it up only because of a possible suspension. That's it. I won't get into any other reason why. I won't get into specifics, so on and so forth. But I'll leave you with this. Two points. One, go to YouTube and type in Bob Probert, Vincent Riendu, or Riendo, excuse me, R-I-E-N-D-E-A-U. Type that in, watch that incident, and then watch Reeves and what he did yesterday, and you tell me which one is worse. And mind you, Probert got suspended for a game, and this was in a playoff game. Got suspended for a playoff game, and rightfully so because of what he did. Uh, Let's face it. And he actually, when you watch it, the first person he hit was another tough guy in the league, Garth Butcher, I might add. But tell me which one was worse. Get back to me on that. That's number one. And I'm not trying to say that that one's right, and this one, I'm not comparing, I'm just comparing the incident itself and what's suspendable and what's not. And you're going to look at reasons, be like, no, no, the reason to be suspended for that compared to what Probert did. And I understand it's a little bit extreme and exaggerate, but that's worthy of a suspension. Not yesterday. That's number one. But then the second thing and the more important thing. All right, people. The bottom line is that all these sports in some way, shape or form has gone backwards. For everything that I detailed just now with the hockey, the analytics are ruining baseball as we know it. And there's no ifs, ands, buts, babies about it. Please, let's not even go there, people. We've talked about that. Ad infinitum and ad nauseum. The NBA is all about the three-point shot and isolation and we know that that sport is a far cry from what it once was and it's actually gotten worse in that regard and even football for all the rules from one year to the next and some of the luster has been taken away I get that football is dominant and is supreme and premier in this country understood but even for someone who's watched sports as long as I have let's face it the game has changed some of it for the better, but some of it for the worse only because of some of the rules. It has nothing to do with the hitting and all that. I understand player safety. Get it. But the NFL, to me, the game isn't really the same the way it was five years ago, let alone 10, 20 years ago. And as a lifelong sports fan, it's taken some of the integrity away, some of the grit, even the intrigue from what I truly remember about how great these sports were and how I fell in love with these sports. And sadly, slowly but surely, it's eroding down to its core. Now, I've invested countless hours, years of playing, following, watching it like you wouldn't believe. I mean, that's all I do, people. I get up, I I probably go to my ESPN and all these sports websites a million times a day. And between the games, watching, following, etc., This is why I do this. This is why I have this platform. This is why I have this podcast. You know, I just don't wake up and, oh, let me see what I need to write today. No, 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 no. It's following it religiously. And I've been doing it since birth. But when you see how all these sports, not just hockey, but how all these sports have just started to slowly but surely, whether they want to say for the better or not, are starting to come undone 
and loving the sport that what we once had seen at its best, at its peak, and it still does have its moments. It hasn't taken away. We could look at the Final Four, the UCLA-Gonzaga game. We could go back to some of these classic games. Hopefully tonight between Toronto and Montreal, we have a classic game. I'd want to see that. But it doesn't negate the fact that sports on a whole has not been the same the way it once was because of everything that I've explained. So although sports isn't going to get rid of me anytime soon, but it does make you wonder, will there ever be a day that it does? Also, Wayne Gretzky steps down as vice chairman in Edmonton. So look at that. With everything that's happening with the Oilers, he said, the hell with this. I'm going to go to TNT and become an analyst. How about that? So the game's greatest player and arguably the top player in any sport. That's right. Over Jordan. Tiger. I understand it's an individual sport, but as far as team sports go, LeBron, eh, no one was as good as Gretzky. Look it up. And with TNT now going to be the host of NHL games starting next year, he's going to be an analyst. And it's going to be interesting to see how that translates with Gretzky. Obviously, there isn't any other player in the world that you want to be an ambassador of your sport than Wayne Gretzky. So we'll see how his TV career goes as he steps down as chairman of the Edmonton Oilers. Now, I'm going to turn my attention to baseball here as we get to this Memorial Day, and this is one of the points of the year that you look at. I know a lot of people will look at the quarter mark or the, maybe even now as a lot of teams have played a third of their seasons, but really when you look at the baseball schedule, you look at this as the first point as a lay of the land of how we could see these teams maybe shape out throughout the course of the rest of the year. I understand there are some exceptions. You can look at the 2019 Washington Nationals when they were 19-31 and 31, I believe right before Memorial Day they took off and we know what happened as they were the last team standing winning a World Series but as we take a look and the first team that you gotta put the bullseye on the Tampa Bay Rays how the hell do they do it is beyond me now I get it three weeks from now they'll go into a tailspin and they may be five games behind the Red Sox or Yankees in the division but Here they are now, winners of 15 of the last 16 games. As I mentioned earlier, they're going to come to the Bronx for four games, which is good and bad for this reason. After Thursday, they only have six games left over the course of the last three and a half months of the season. So pretty much you have all of June, all of July, all of August, and I guess they're probably playing September. I don't know. I haven't looked at the schedule, but it's not as if you're going to have this killer race to the end where they still face each other another nine or ten times to close out the season. And on the flip side of that, the Yankees will face the Red Sox for the first time because right after Tampa leaves town, the Red Sox will invade the Bronx for the first time this year. So this coming Friday will be game one of 19 between the Red Sox and Yankees. So I guess that's where it bounces out. But going back to Tampa, when you look at Charlie Morton leaving and then trading Blake Snell to San Diego... And even though they have Tyler Glass now, who is your by far the number one starter on the team, and then you look at their lineup, and it's not as if they're the 1927 Yankees by any stretch. And yes, they have a couple of thumpers in their lineup, and they have some guys that are professional hitters, 
But whether it's the, <clears throat> dare I say, analytics department of them bringing a certain type of player in, obviously their bullpen is very resourceful where they have openers, where they have guys that could throw 100 mile an hour gas. They have a bunch of killer arms in that bullpen. That's been their recipe for success over the years. And right now, they are the hottest team in all of baseball to the tune of 34 and 20. The slimmest of margins in first place ahead of the Red Sox. Four games and the loss, three and a half ahead of the Yankees as they have an enormous series here. And I'm not going to say a telling series, but it's going to be more telling for the Yankees right now because they're the ones that are coming into this series with their tail between their legs. Last week, we were singing their praises how they won eight straight series where they had the Toronto Blue Jays coming in and the Blue Jays not only took two out of three, but they go to Detroit, one of the worst teams in baseball, and not only do they get swept out of the Motor City, the highlight of the weekend for the Yankees was Gio Urshela getting a base on balls after three balls. And even with Aaron Judge as the tying run at the plate in the ninth inning, down 6-2, to two, striking out, what else is new? The Yankees are the biggest strikeout team in the land. But the Tigers took care of them to the point where the games were pretty much, other than the Friday night game, they weren't even competitive. In the Friday night game, they had Garrett Cole going up against Casey Mize, and then you got to wonder why didn't Chapman go back out into the 10th inning in a tie ball game going into the 10th where the Yankees took the lead 2-1, to one, and then you figure Chapman, who threw 14 pitches at the bottom of the ninth, figured would have come in to start at least the bottom of the 10th, but no, he gets pulled, and then the Yankees lose that game. They bring in Justin Wilson, and here they are, Losers of five of six and playing a race team that have, other than for one series, and which was their last series that they played down in Tampa a few weeks back, the Tampa Bay Rays have owned them. So we're going to see very telling week for the Yanks. Also telling for the Rays in this regard, because I think that during this streak, and which they perform well, I don't care if they're playing the dregs, and even if they're playing bad teams, all right, you can look at it and say, well, all right, let's see them now step up a competition. You can only play the teams that are in front of you. Understood. But now, and they'll face Garrett Cole in this series, I believe, on Wednesday. And Cole was the one of the two losses that he has this year, I believe, was against the Rays. That was a game back in Yankee Stadium earlier when the Rays came in and swept the Yankees. So now, let's see how these four games, which are going to be the biggest ones of the week, at least for the early part of the week, here in Major League Baseball, to kind of put themselves up against one another as they either try to extend their first place lead over the hated Yankees or the Yankees inch closer and try to get themselves to first place a perch that they have not seen at any point this year. They've been close, but they haven't been in first. And then it's interesting because this week on Wednesday is Lou Gehrig Day, which will be June 2nd, and that's a day when they announced it in the offseason. I was happy on two fronts, and everybody knows I'm not a Yankee fan, but not only is June 2nd the day he died uh, 80 years ago at the age of 37, but of course they want to recognize ALS and to educate people of this terrible disease that's been obviously called Lou Gehrig's disease for a reason. But also to honor the man for what he's done, Iron Horse, not only beloved Yankee, but for the younger folk to know who Lou Gehrig is. And sadly that he's 
correlated with this terrible disease, but at the same time, people that are prisoners of the moment wouldn't know that if Lou Gehrig fell on him, this guy was not just a revered all-time Yankee. This guy is arguably probably in the top 10 baseball players of all time. All time. That's right. In the 151-year history of this league, Lou Gehrig, we all know he's in the Mount Rushmore of Yankees and not even Derek Jeter could muscle his way through to get past Babe, Joe D, Mickey Mantle, and Lou Gehrig. But when you look at the history of the sport, you could throw him anywhere between 2 and 10, or maybe even 3 and 10. That's how great he was. So to honor him on this day, certainly a great gesture by Major League Baseball, not only just on June 2nd this year, but moving forward. So I'm sure you're going to see, hear, or read a lot about that. With the other baseball news and notes, it's funny, also with the Yankees, couple that with Corey Kluber being on the shelf for two months now. Look, he throws that no-hitter, and then he had to be pulled from the game the other day after three innings, and now you're not going to see him until probably late July, maybe even early August. Gary Sanchez, who can't even run the bases anymore, as you saw there yesterday. I mean, if the Yankees can't cut bait with this guy, and we understand, it's almost as if Brian Cashman is afraid to trade some of these players, whether your name is Clint Frazier and even Gary Sanchez for that matter, because if he goes to greener pastures and ends up hitting 280, 35, and 105, that, oh, geez, this is what we were waiting for. Well, you can't base it on that. And check the receipts. I said this years ago, two years ago, how they should have traded Gary Sanchez because they have too much right-handed hitting power as it is to begin with. And Kyle... Higashioka, who's a better receiver and has some pop, but is batting 180, similar to Gary Sanchez as it is right now. But they could have gotten back a starter. They could have gotten back a plethora of talent for one Gary Sanchez. And now you probably couldn't get him for a bag of baseballs. Even with another year and a half left on his contract, not to be a free agent and with all the potential in the world. So I digress with that. Now, to think that the one team has a Memorial Day, and there's this stat that I believe 70% of the teams that are in first place on Memorial Day make it to the postseason. Well, I would certainly hold my breath because the one team in Major League Baseball that has the biggest lead on the next team in their division at three and a half games, and mind you, they've had God knows how many rainouts and postponements, and that is the New York Mets as they have a three and a half game lead and I believe are six in the loss or maybe even seven in the loss to the Phillies. But because they have all these games to make up, it's an absolute farce. And you got to blame Mother Nature for this. They were rained out Friday, rained out yesterday. They were rained out Wednesday where they had to play a doubleheader against Colorado. Remember, the first three games of the year were wiped out because of the COVID issue with the Nationals and all the other rainouts in between. I mean, geez. The Mets are going to be tapped out here by the time you get to August. They're going to have so many games to make up that watch them fall back to the pack, even at 25 and 20. And mind you, they're doing it with a mass unit, although they are getting pieces back. Pete Alonso is going to be off the IL. Seth Lugo is going to be off the IL, which is going to be welcoming to say the least. The Met bullpen has been far than what I could have ever imagined. 
Their starters have been great. Taiwan Walker's come back, and he pitched well against the Braves the other night. Syndergaard had a setback, so who knows if we're going to see him at any point this year. Carlos Carrasco as well. I mean, this team is, and even though he had a home run the other night, but please, can anybody find Francisco Lindor, please? As he's, I don't know, in the witness protection program, who knows, but geez. And they're still somehow, someway in first place. But I think that has a lot to do with the ineptitude of the rest of the teams in the division. So to me, it's more of an indictment on them than it is the Mets. And as I look at it here, yes, it's actually six games with the Braves in the loss, three and a half behind the Mets. And then everybody else in the division has 28 losses. But as we zoom through both leagues in the Central, the Cardinals here have a half game lead on the Cubs. And the Cubs have surprised me, which I'll get to in a minute as far as my over-unders are concerned. But the Cubs have played very well. And what about that play by Javi Baez the other day? Now, that was more brain lock on the Pirate first baseman than it was Baez. But he had the wherewithal as the first baseman got off the bag. If you didn't see the play, I'll try to describe it for you quickly. Runner on second, I believe one out, ground ball the third, routine play, throws across the diamond. Now, it pulls the first baseman off the bag to where Baez was about 10 feet in front of the first baseman. So now he slowly jogs backwards to where the first baseman now is going to follow him toward home plate. So instead of going back to touch first base, which he should have done to begin with, he now gets baited by Baez to go back to home plate. Now the runner that was on third is now charging home. So the first baseman now throws to the plate. The catcher makes the tag, but he's safe. Now Baez is running the first base because there's nobody covering first. The second baseman now goes to cover as the catcher throws the ball towards first. That goes by him into the outfield to where now Baez is at second base. And then as the right fielder is throwing it to the shortstop, that goes by him. A comedy of errors, Keystone Cops. Unfortunately, that's why they're the Pirates. And that's a play that as many years as you watch baseball, and I'm sure you hear announcers say, I've seen everything that's happened on the diamond. There is always one thing that we'll never see. And for whatever the reason, baseball is the only sport that brings that. Because I've never seen a play where a guy was dead to rights and should have been, all he had to do was step on the bag and the play would have been at third and that's it. But Baez goaded him into chasing him down the line back toward home plate. Uh, you can't make it up. That's just an unbelievable play and just a heads up play on Baez. Which we know he has a knack for the inexplicable and unpredictable when it comes to him so but the central is tight there and the brewers who had a series this past weekend where they're just two games back but they swept the nationals no big whoop there and now we'll wait and see what's going to shake down there as far as the west goes the padres have been playing very well And same for the Giants. The Dodgers also trying to get themselves back into the mix. And they pretty much are there too. I'm not trying to say that the Dodgers aren't in the NL West. But as we look at these standings, that's going to be, I would think, a two-team race. The Giants, who have played very well and over their heads, are they going to have enough steam here to continue to play with the likes of the Padres and Dodgers? It remains to be seen. But give credit to the Giants because after getting swept last week, in San Francisco by the Dodgers. They lose the first game of a four-game series, but then win the next three. So they were able to at least get themselves 
write it a little bit and not have the Dodgers swirling snakes in their collective heads. So the Giants may be here to stay. Still a lot of games we played. Gabe Kapler is a guy that you have to question as a manager, as we've seen in his one stop in Philly. And even a little bit last year, I get it, 60 games, pandemic, not a full season, but they've played very well here and have been in quite the surprise, not only just in the National League, but in baseball. And then we've talked about the AL East and how that's uh, shaking down. Red Sox, although tied in the loss, just a game behind them. And the Yankees, uh, four and a half back with the Blue Jays, six back. White Sox, who, with Tony La Russa having to face his old club there early in the week where they lost two out of three, but since then... Winning the back end of that game with Lucas Giolito. And he was actually going up against uh, his old high school teammate in Jack Flaherty. But they did win the third game and then swept over the weekend to where now they're three and a half games ahead of the Indians. And the Royals are trying to hang in there. Just a game under 500 to move out west. Oakland and Houston. That looks like it's going to be a race to the finish. Seattle's actually played well here. To where they're back to 500 and just three in a loss and three and a half behind the Athletics. But do they have enough to sustain for a long stretch? Chances are it's not going to be the case. And even the Angels, five under and no Mike Trout, have been decent. I mean, are they going to be anywhere near a division race or a wild card? Absolutely not. But they haven't imploded without their superstar. So that pretty much rounds out your baseball as we head into the unofficial beginning of summer and next stop will be 4th of July and the All-Star break to see where these teams will land and pretty much as we look at it here you got to ask yourself do the Giants have enough what it takes to keep themselves in a division race or even in a wild card I would say yes to wild card division no how the NL East is going to shape up that's beyond me Uh, that's just been awful and a lot of people thought that was going to be the best division in baseball heading into the season We'll see what uh, happens there. And pretty much what's going to happen in the AL East is going to be big too. Between those three teams, you want to throw in Toronto, okay. But other than that, those are going to be your focal points for Major League Baseball this year. Because what's going to happen in the AL Central, you would think the White Sox are going to run away with it. Are the Indians going to be part of the wild card mix? You would think so, based on the manager and they have a pitcher in Bieber that could carry the team. And they have a, a good offensive player and a one Jose Ramirez. Houston, because of the Astros, they're going to be there. I don't think Seattle will. And you do have some storylines. Obviously, we'll take a look as we get into the middle of the summer, into the halfway point, and we'll certainly get a better understanding and feel for these teams as we get to that juncture of the season. Now, let me get to... Yeah, I'm not even going to talk about Mickey Calloway. I know I wrote him down. He's banned from baseball until 2022. Do I even need to say more when I mention Mickey Calloway? I'll just leave it at that. But my over-unders right now, uh, what could you say? I will give you this. My overs that are looking good, Miami and St. Louis. St. Louis at 88, Miami 73 and a half. Those are two, maybe not so much St. Louis. A lot of people thought St. Louis was going to be good this year. But Miami, I wanted to pick a team that maybe could take that next step because of their pitching. Were they going to be a playoff team like they were a year ago? Absolutely not. But I figured, hey, I think there's going to be a little bit of upside with this team. And so far, they have shown that. As far as an under that I could look at here, I did pick Toronto at 86. That's going to be borderline right now. And the Cubs have played well here. Now let's get to the bad part of this. So the good was Miami, St. Louis. 
the two overs, and then maybe an under Toronto. That's going to be, ugh, that's going to come down to the wire. Now, here are the bad. The bad is I picked Chicago at 79.5 because I thought with the turnover, Chris Bryant and not knowing whether he was going to bounce back, and he's had a, excuse me, very good year to date. And with the Cubs, you never know. They could fall off a cliff too. I thought they'd be around 500, maybe a little bit below. That's why I picked them. But right now, they are superseding all expectations on my end, so they're making me look bad. And now the ugly, because it was such a trendy pick, I picked San Diego under as 92, and that's not looking, for obvious reasons, not very good. But now the ugly here, I really thought that the Twins were going to have a big year. Big year, at least win 90 games, and their number was 89 and a half. And why not? We knew the White Sox were going to be good. We figured the Indians would be somewhere in the mid-80s. And I thought that, hey, they would crack 90. Why not? We understand that they've had a lot of injuries. We understand that they've been underachieving so far. Not to the point to where they are in the standings at nine and a half back. And what is their record? 23 and 32, I think, right now. I've had to take a guess. What is their record? 21 and 31. So, yeah. That's not looking very good if you ask me. So they would have to pretty much run the table in order for me to crack 90 wins. And if I do the math right off the top of my head, they would have to go 69 and 40 the rest of the way. That is not going to happen. So we'll come back around the All-Star break and then Labor Day for an update as to what the over-under numbers will look like. All right, now let me zoom through these final few things before we say goodbye here. And the first one in the NFL, where June 1st is tomorrow, and you're going to have some players, I would think, let go because you have some cap issues with bonuses and things of that nature. But the big news coming out over the past week, and you would think in the coming days, is going to be Julio Jones. As he said, I believe in a podcast last week, that he is out of there when it comes to playing for the Falcons. Where he's going to go remains to be seen. There have been some reports that a team has offered a number one pick. That team has not been revealed. Although Seattle has been in discussions, and in particular, Russell Wilson, that he's had phone conversations with Julio Jones. Uh, is that not tampering, NFL? What's going on here? If it's been reported that there's been some phone calls back and forth, that's not good. Now, what does that mean? Can they have these phone calls and that's okay? Or if Wilson was quoted as saying, yeah, I'm trying to recruit Julio Jones or made a mention of Julio Jones in some sort of story, then maybe that's tampering, but it's okay for them to have these phone conversations that you know is more than just talking about how the wife and kids and how your offseason is going. So I don't think Seattle is a good landing spot for him. Think about it. They already have DK Metcalf was one of the top receivers in the sport. They extended Tyler Lockett to a long-term deal is a very good number two. And I get that you could have the tag team of Julio Jones and DK Metcalf, but you know that's going to cause a rift because you're going to have two alpha dogs. There's only one football to get thrown around to. And to me, if Seattle's looking to make an impact here this offseason, they need to get an offensive lineman because we all know that's been the brunt of the issues that Russell Wilson has talked about from time after time over these years is protection in his offensive line or to get that game-wrecking pass rusher that they desperately need in order to 
turn the fate and the playoff chances to Super Bowl chances for a one Seattle Seahawks team. Until they get those two players in, Julio Jones is not the answer. Where he's going to go, I understand New England could be a destination. A lot of people may think that could be the case, but remember, he's coming at a $13 million price tag, which the Patriots have already handed out a lot of big money contracts. And is there enough room for one former All-Pro to be added to the mix? I don't know. I'm not privy to their cap situation, but I don't think that's going to be the case if you ask me. So you got that to deal with. But where he's going to go, I don't know. And also with Seattle, he's not going to go for number one pick this year because remember, he's going to the Jets for the Jamal Adams deal. Not only did they get the number one pick this year, but also next. So you can forget about that. So where he's going to go is beyond me. Maybe even Tennessee. I thought I saw something with A.J. Brown. Maybe bringing... Julio Jones to Tennessee. Again, I don't know what your cap situation is there. If you're the Titans. And I don't know if he wants to go there. That's another thing. So we'll have to see how this all unfolds. Now let me turn my attention to the French Open as the second tennis tournament, major tennis tournament, took place. Roland Garros underway yesterday. And I'll start off with this. Why did the men's side have... Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer on the same side of the bracket is beyond me. You have Joker is one, Rafa is three, and I believe Federer is eight. So where now you're going to have a situation where either one of those three, there's going to be a quarterfinal aspect and a semifinal aspect that's going to be confronted and it's going to take a lot of sting and a lot of buzz out of what that final could be because if you put Rafa on the other side of the bracket, chances are you're going to have a scenario where you may have Joker going up against Rafa in a French Open final. Now you're not going to have that. So whether you have Federer, who has been playing in various tournaments recently, he's coming out of that knee injury, but how effective he's going to be remains to be seen. And on a clay surface, which is another aspect that you got to think about, or if you have Nadal go to a final and he's going to face, who knows, Daniel Medvedev or Sispidas for that matter, the Greek kid, remains to be seen. But we know how dominant he is on the clay surface. And then Joker, is that going to be the same scenario where he's going to go up against, let's say, Rafa in a quarterfinal or even in a semifinal in this instance? And then it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to win the immense final? Uh, they, they just blew that beyond belief. So that's number one. But the bigger story is Naomi Osaka with this media boycott. And I understand mental health, that's nothing to play with, nothing to mess with. And there's no argument whatsoever. She's already been docked $15,000 for not speaking to the media because there is an obligation that in the post-match that you meet the media for a few minutes. And I get her take that, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that athletes are more like robots or the media treats them like robots, that they have to fulfill these obligations, that they have to always be up there with a smile or up there with a little bit of exuberance and to have a little bit of, I'm not going to say a banter, but to have an exchange to where the interviewer is going to ask the question and that whatever that question may be, the player or the interviewee is going to have to answer it. 
And maybe on that given day or given performance, they don't want to do that. And we've seen that with Kyrie Irving this year to the tune of him being docked X amount of money. But for the tennis association to go as far as saying that they're going to expel Naomi Osaka from the tournament, they're cutting their nose off to spite their face. And that would be a travesty to the sport itself. And there's only about 40,000 fans out there in the world that follow tennis, and especially in this country for that matter. So if you really want to alienate the fan base of whether it's the casual, even a diehard tennis fan by expelling arguably the best player in the sports, he's ranked number two in the world right now. But that, I mean, that's just an absolute travesty if they're going to do that. Now, if they want to continue to find her, that's one thing. And as we all know, money talks. So if they continue to hit her wallet, I'm sure she's going to come around to think, all right, I'm going to have to spend 10 minutes in a room being interviewed by the media and then I could just walk out and the rest of my day I could go about my business and I'm not going to sit here and say that's the tactic she should take because if that's what she doesn't want to do that's fine but if she's going to get fined in the process and if she's willing to give up all these paychecks and amounts of 15, 20, 30 and I'm sure it's going to continue to increase the more she holds out here if she's willing to do that, then that's her money, then so be it. If it gives her the peace of mind, that's fine. But to expel her, that's just an absolute joke. I mean, come on. Why would they even think about doing that is beyond me. But for them to just disqualify her, or for, well, you're not meeting with the media? Well, we're just going to have to take away your spot here in the tournament and give it to somebody else, or we're going to have to move on without you? That, come on. Tennis Association, you're better than that. If you want to hit it where it hurts, you have every right to do that. Because we want to know in a certain game or match how she performed, what took place, because she had done something better, whatever. And if she doesn't want to answer that, fine. She can say no comment, next question, whatever, that's on her. And if she doesn't want to show up, that's on her too. But if she's going to get fined, and if that's part of the process and the obligations, then that's fine too. But to kick her out, uh uh-uh. That is inexplicable. And on a whole for this tournament, with the men's, you know what's going to happen here. It's going to be either Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer, I think. But I figured Nadal or Djokovic is going to be your winner here. And for the women's side, I'll say Osaka right now. I don't know about Ashley Barty. I don't know about if Coco Goff could make a little run here. Not to say to be a champion, but maybe make it to a quarterfinal. Remains to be seen. But Osaka right now, she's on top of her game, and I don't see anybody beating her. So I could see her coming away with the title, barring anything stupid by the Tennis Association, as I just mentioned. So we'll keep our eyes on that. On to yesterday, which I talked about last week. As a boy, Americana, the last Sunday of May, the Indianapolis 500, which I'm not going to say I followed lap by lap as a kid, but having my old AFX racing track and knowing who Jackie Stewart is and knowing who Al Unser Jr. is and A.J. Foyt, and Mario Andretti, and go on down the line. Knowing who all those guys were, that that was an enormous event every Memorial Day Sunday. And for this year, and it was on ABC back in the day, now it's on NBC. To me, that race was synonymous with ABC, Wild World of Sports, everything that tied into it. But you had a very familiar face win that race, and the one, Helio Castroneves, a.k.a. Spider-Man, who scaled the fence yet again for his fourth Record-tying Indianapolis 500. 
Actually, he was the fastest of all time, surpassing Tony Cannon in 2013, I believe, at two hours, 40 minutes, or three seconds. He eclipsed that by about 11 seconds, or a little bit less than that, at 239.50. He joins AJ Foyt, Alan Jr., the two guys that I mentioned, and Rick Mears as the other three. He won back in 01, 02, and 09, so 12 years between victories for one Castroneves. And what could you say? Actually, he won in the final seconds of this race, when you think about it, because Alex Palou, in the final two laps, had the lead, and then Castroneves took over to the point where he actually won by less than half a second. I think it was literally four-tenths of a second that he beat Alex Palou to win the Indianapolis 500. So he had a little bit of drama, a little bit of excitement. And if you're auto racing for the 15 people that watched it, and granted that there was 135,000, which was roughly 40% that filled the building at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is by far the largest attended sporting event since the pandemic back last March. And I don't know if anything could top that. I mean, 135,000, that was 40%. So there you go. But for those who watched at home, were able to witness a thrilling event. And again, one who's very familiar with winning this race. So congratulations to Ilio Castroneves for winning the Indy 500. And then lastly, Tiger Woods had a statement this past week. No timetable for his return, but in discussion, in light of the car accident that he suffered three months ago, was more painful than anything that he had experienced. And that is a quote from Tiger. No paraphrasing here. Humbled by all the support. Humbled by the generosity of some of the brethren, his golfers, the other players on the tour that not only have reached out but spent time with him throughout this process. And again, who knows when he's going to return. It's going to be some time before I think we even see him. So we shall see when it comes to a one Eldrick Tiger Woods as he's still recovering Still on the mend. I'm sure it's going to be quite some time before we even think about him teeing off somewhere for practice, let alone in a tournament. So just knowing that he's recovering and nicely well, although it's as painful more than any back surgery or knee surgery that he's had to endure here over the course of his career. But just knowing that we got a quote from him is a plus and that he's in the right direction on the mend to recovery. Now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Major League Baseball umpire Cowboy Joe West. He surpassed Bill Clem, who held the record since 1941 for the most games umpired in the history of baseball. 5,376 games. His career dates back to 1976 when he began. Well respected throughout the game amongst players, managers, former players, etc. And everybody knows who Cowboy Joe West is. Uh, I don't have to explain it. He's a character in his own right and even got into into it with one of the St. Louis Cardinal relievers for having a substance on his hat where he had to tell him to take off his hat and exchange it. Giovanni Gallegos it was. So in grand fashion, Joe West becomes the all-time games umpired in the history of the sport. So he is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Atlanta Braves outfielder Marcelo Zuna. Not only did he have a bad game where he fractured a couple of fingers sliding into first base headfirst in Boston during the week, but on Saturday afternoon, there was an alleged domestic dispute to where he choked his wife 
and threw her against a wall. Now, he's currently in a Fulton County jail as I speak. Who knows what the future of his career will be? We know how, in this day and age, no tolerance when it comes to any type of alleged domestic dispute. We don't know if the union could do anything about something like this, but for Ozuna, if these reports are accurate and also could be charged with a felonious assault and could spend a minimum of three to a maximum of 20 years in prison, you are my zero of the week. 196 is just about in the books. A little housekeeping before we go. First and foremost to you guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading for following the J Reels podcast as your source for everything that's happening in the world of sports. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to whether you listen to me on the road, while at home, on a treadmill, on a jog, whatever it is. Truly grateful and thankful for your support. And you can enhance that support by helping promote the growth and expansion of this podcast by not only subscribing, but also rating and reviewing it on wherever you get your podcasts, so whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, you know all the platforms, pretty much what I said at the very top of this podcast. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast to those who aren't familiar with it, so in turn, I could get that former athlete, you know the deal. So please, subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, I would sincerely appreciate that. Take a screenshot, send it to me, I'll send it on all my social media accounts which we'll segue to right now if you want to reach out with a dm or question comment some criticism praise whatever it may be you could do so on instagram at j reels or the j reels podcast which is strictly sports on twitter j reels one just a number on facebook the j reels podcast fan page or the old-fashioned way at the j reels podcast at gmail.com send them my way i'll be sure to follow up with you and then lastly if you want to support this endeavor by contributing to this podcast, you could do so on my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. What your contribution will do as far as the upkeep of the production, equipment, the website, etc. So I could continue to pump out these podcasts on a week in, week out basis, which I'll continue to do. But if whatever you want to contribute, I will completely, truly be humbled and honored. And grateful for that support because if you didn't hear throughout the course of this podcast, and I don't know when you'll hear how all of this is in my blood, it's in the DNA as I like to say it, to dissect, to analyze, to share my thoughts, my opinions on everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.